those core principles should also drive putting local voices in the lead of everything that we are doing. We should build on local strength. Sometimes there's too much emphasis on problems instead of the local strength, and yet problems are everywhere. Hello and welcome to Goalmakers, a podcast about world affairs and global development as told from the perspective of leaders, experts, and practitioners. Goalmakers is produced by Global Washington, a network of nonprofit, for-profit, and funder organizations working to improve lives in low- and middle-income countries. To learn more, visit us at www.globalwa.org. I'm your host, Joel Myers, Director of Communications for Global Washington. In this episode, directors from Village Reach the Hunger Project and CARE talk about the future of global development and specifically, and perhaps most importantly at this juncture in current affairs, the concept of decolonizing global development. Listen to how each organization has embraced this shift, the challenges they've encountered and the successes they've achieved. And there have even been some surprisingly positive unintended consequences. Localization, decentralizing power, country-led development, community-led development. These are all terms that describe the shifting of power to the local communities where the humanitarian work is being performed. This session recorded in December 2021 at our Goalmakers Conference is moderated by Akhtar Badshaw, distinguished practitioner and senior lecturer at the University of Washington and author of Purpose Mindset. I'll let Akhtar introduce the panelists. Take it away, Akhtar. We're going through this enormous transition, transformation, change that has come about over many years in the international development field, but has been accelerated over the last couple of years. And the pandemic has clearly given in some ways, new vigor for some of the changes that are happening, especially the commitment of the development community to decentralizing leadership. We have three amazing panelists uh, here with us. Ruth uh, Bechtel, who's the Vice President of Programs at Village Reach. Rose Dechiwango, who is the Global Vice, uh, who is the country director for care in Ghana, and Roland Kachocha, who is the vice, global vice president of the Hunker Project. As we said, over the past few years, each of your organizations have done an internal examination and committed to decentralizing leadership to improve programs through country-led design. Tell us just in, in a few words and also you know, give us some insights as to what are the specific impetus at your organization to drive this internal review and change process. And let me start with Rose. Okay, um, thank you, Akta. And thank you to, the, to Global Washington for inviting me on this panel. Um, as Akta has indicated, um, Many of us in this space are going through a lot of introspection about our role. Um, we're looking at events such as Black Lives Matters, movements such as Black Lives Matters, the decolonization um, 
conversation and also the emergence of um, uh, democratic and uh, states uh, across the, what we traditionally call the global south. And for care, this journey um, of change began a long time ago. I joined CARE in 2005. At the time, we were talking about just what do, how do we view the people we work with and the communities we serve. And one conscious um, change we began that far back was to change how we refer to the people we work with from recipients or beneficiaries to participants and contributors. So that already was a paradigm shift. And then this, in this time with COVID and all that is happening. And um, for example, in Ghana, we are talking about moving beyond aid to be self-sufficient and, self, um, and achieve self-efficacy. Our role as international organizations is to support the communities, not only the communities, but the governments in the places where we work to make this transformation happen and for our initiatives to be truly globally led and community led. And that means valuing the knowledge and the, under, uh, and the expertise of the, of the communities we serve and bringing leaders from within those communities to lead decision-making and not just implementation of our in initiatives. Over to you. Thank you so much. Uh, Ruth, if I can ask you to share a few words. No, thank you very much, um, and uh, thank you for the uh, Global Washington uh, for you having me in this panel. Um, so I want to start my answer to that question by saying that Village Reach is an organization that is locally driven and globally connected. So what does this mean? It means that we need strong country teams in our three core countries. Um, that we work at, which include DRC, uh, that is the Democratic Republic of Congo, Malawi, and Mozambique. So this, we need these teams to have uh, full technical, administrative, and management capabilities so that they can uh, adequately lead uh, programs in country. Uh, it also means that uh, we need global connective staff who can help to create regional and global connections that drive the scale and replication of the solutions that we co-develop with governments and partners in the countries where we work. Where we work. Uh, as an organization that does not intend to be huge, we know that our impact uh, and our reach is, is uh, gonna be reached by uh, working uh, with partners to replicate. Um, and so that is one of the ways in which we ensure that our work reaches Further. With that in mind, we had to decide how to operationalize that in practice. And I remember sitting in a meeting, um, a management meeting in uh, June 2017 when I was visiting Seattle, where we made a commitment to take concrete steps towards reviewing our staffing structure and decentralizing leadership in our organization. First, we built our new we built out um, a new staffing principle uh, or principles that clearly stated that we would hire as close to the work as possible. Um, what this meant was that we would hire in Africa region unless there was a justified reason why the position needed to be in the USA. 
Uh, so this led to us establishing effective ways for advertising new positions and uh, recruiting in the region. Secondly, we made a commitment that we would hire people who are from or live in the places where we work. And so these two simple agreements fundamentally changed how we approached future hires and allowed us to accelerate change in the organization. What also shifted as a result of that commitment, of those commitments uh, made in that meeting in 2017 was where the global technical team that play the connective role tend to be based. In the past, this team was mostly US based, but today the majority of our global technical team are in Sub-Saharan Africa. We also had a leadership change later in 2027 when we hired our next vice president for programs in South Africa. This is the position that I hold today. So I'm one good example of our leadership decentralization policy in action. By moving this key executive leadership role to the region, we were positioning ourselves better to support our country teams and to support our growing global technical team. This momentum has led to other targets within the organization. For instance, 50% um, of our leadership defined by us as global management team leaders, leads of global, global technical teams and uh, solution leads is currently based is, is currently Africa-based, which is an increase from 28% uh, 18 months ago. So we are now in the process of recruiting future board of directors uh, candidates in Africa so that our governance also better represents our staffing and our operations. So actually, there was no one single impetus. Uh, if I may go back to your question, we wanted to strengthen our capacity to engage and implement programs at each country level and still have global influence. And we had an organizational value of diversity and inclusion. And so we had to reflect on what that really meant to us as an organization and how we could reflect that value in who we hire and how we work. Thank you. This is terrific. Thank you so much, Ruth. And I really love how you kind of talked about you know, just this notion of being locally driven and globally connected, I thought was, you know, just, just a very great way of putting the change that is, that you all are driving towards. Roland, um, you know, your work and the Hunger Project, share a little bit about how the changes that are happening there. Uh, thank you very much, Akta. And um, uh, thank you for having me here. I'm joining you all the way from um, Malawi in Southern Africa. And um, um, really glad to be here. Now for the Hunger Project, since the beginning of the Hunger Project, um, the issue of community-led has been the way of being. So since we were founded, the Hunger Project has been a community-led organization, right? So I would like to approach it from that side uh, for, the, for the beginning. Um, uh, examples I'll give is uh, our programs were designed right at the beginning in partnership with the people whom we are hoping to save. And the, we use a community-led development methodology which places the people that are living in the conditions of chronic hunger 
to be in charge of their own unique journey to self-reliance. And we have developed tools to do that. At strategy formulation process, for example, right now, we are in the process of strategy formulation, which has begun at program country level. And then it moves on to partner or funding country level to support it. When we talk of program leadership, all our teams are nationals of those countries where we work in. So every country we work in in Africa, there are teams of nationals that are based in those countries. And then as Hunger Project, we strongly believe in um, building or bringing community-led development to scale. So the Hunger Project founded and currently serves as a secretariat of what we call Movement for Community-Led Development, which has become a platform of 1,500 community-based organizations worldwide as of now, who share practices and also advocate for a collective voice for decentralization at both national as well as global level. And they have also at this platform come up with a rubric of what should, what should really qualify at a minimum standard to be called a community-led development approach because there are so many claims out there. And so to see that rubric is really great that the global community can agree on that, but being given by community-based organization. Now, when I say that, I would like to say it with all humility that even though it is, it is our way of being, that's how we were founded, we have by no means perfected it. And I say that with all humility. And we continue to ask ourselves as an organization, tough questions. I'll mention three tough questions that we ask ourselves out of the many. For example, we continue to ask ourselves, is our decentralized program leadership coupled with the decentralized decision-making and resource control? Tough questions to ask. We continue to ask ourselves as an organization. Yes, this is our way of being, but we want to continue growing and improving. We also ask ourselves, where is power located in our organization? And where, why is it located there? We, we humbly ask this question because we want to continue and we continue to make improvements. And I'm glad to be joining you as my colleague Ruth and my other colleague from Ghana said, to be joining you as a global vice president located in Southern Africa from Malawi. And I sit on the executive team of this global organization. The third question we also ask ourselves is what more and what new? So it is not just an issue of doing more of what we already do, but what new can we do as an organization? What, can you, what new things can we learn and improve so that we truly become community-led? So that has been our journey as the Hunger Project until now. Thank you, Akta. Roland, thank you very much. And again, I mean, you know, this is, this is great to see three phenomenal organizations being so deeply steeped in this change. And Roland, you kind of talked about this whole power dynamics. And when we had our conversation earlier, you kind of were quite empathetic about how this power dynamic needs to change. And I would love for you to share a little bit more about, you know, what does community led mean to you? And how is it changing 
in, you know, over the past 19 months? Is it just tokenism that we are all talking about or what more needs to be done for all of you who are leaders locally to succeed? Thank you very much, Akta. And yes, um, I am passionate about it. So thank you very much for, pick, for picking on it. Um, forgive me when I get too passionate about it. To me, community-led development, honestly, is a process of working together to create and achieve locally owned visions and goals. Please mark locally owned visions and goals. So it is a planning and development approach that is based on a set of core principles. And those core principles should drive vision, creation, and priorities, which should be set by the communities in the geographic area that we are talking about. Those core principles should also drive putting local voices in the lead of everything that we are doing. We should build on local strength. Sometimes there's too much emphasis on problems instead of the local strength. And yet problems are everywhere, you know? And then there is also, and we should build collaboration across sectors. To me, community-led development, one of the set principles is intentionality and adaptability. If it's not there, then we are really not talking about community-led development. And then lastly, we should talk about achieving systemic transformation, systemic change, rather than these small project-based issues of this has increased from here to here, but, but those long-term systemic. Now, turning to the part two of your question, actor, as to what COVID has done in this and how this has shifted. You know, when COVID came, one thing happened to all of us, and we cannot deny it, and history has recorded it. We saw institutions withdrawing their people, <laughs> okay? We saw people running for safety for good reasons. I, I'm 100% supported and I don't demean it. However, you know what? We have to watch something. There is a certain group of people that never relocated anywhere. They have got one world only that exists for them. And that is the community people and the community leadership. They remained in their area. Even when science has no answer, they showed their resilience. They stepped into the front line and showed their leadership. We were all hoping now that now that science has the answer, these community leaders stepped into the front line and showed their leadership. They came out as true heroes of this world. We all rejoice about institutions receiving awards as heroes and all that. The true heroes are these community leaders. So we thought, and for me, I really thought that before starting to build back I thought we were going to build new and not necessarily build back. When I say build new, what I mean is to deeply reflect and make sure that our building back or building new does not diminish that community leadership that truly stood with the people at the time that we all, then the whole global community left them. Now, you talked about just singing and what? I actually call it romanticizing. This is what I've seen. So that's a tough part of COVID. The good side of COVID is that there is more and more talk now and more acceptance of COVID, I mean, of community-led development as an approach. So, so many webinars, so many people talk about it. But you know what? I, I think there is a lot of romanticizing with community-led development rather than truly engaging with it so that we 
allow ourselves to be transformed. Why do I say so? I'll give you three faces which I would like every one of us to be watching every time you hear people talk about community-led development. Watch those three things. When you see them, then you know this is romance taking place. It's not true engagement. Number one, when there's too much talk, which is not coupled by doing and funding for CROD, that's romanticizing. Number two, you will see big organizations right now. They can splash out 5,000, 25,000 for community-led development organizations. It's okay, they can do away with it. But when the numbers start increasing, when the grants are getting to 500,000, 1 million, 2 million, their conversation changes. It becomes an issue of trust, capacity, and those many other issues that we talk about. So the conversation changes completely. And I think, and I would like to submit here, that until we reevaluate that threshold of trust, we are not having a fair conversation about decolonizing development or about CLD or decolonizing aid. And lastly, the third phase is this one. Sometimes I wonder, is this conversation that we are having on this webinar, okay, sometimes when I attend webinar, is this conversation truly a decolonizing aid conversation or it is a different type of conversation only that we have not labeled it properly. Why do I say that? For me, if decolonizing development, decolonizing aid conversation comes with a decline in resources for development, that is not decolonization of aid or decolonization of development conversation. It means we are having a totally different conversation. I think we are having a conversation about dwindling political will and dwindling money and resources towards development. And we cover it up and sugarcoat it as decolonizing aid or decolonizing development. When you see those three things, and you see a conversation of decolonizing aid coming with dwindling resources towards development approaches, then you know that this is a romanticizing taking place. And I see more and more of this right now. And I hope in this conference and moving forward, we are going to reflect deeply about it. Thank you. Roland, thank you very much. And again, I mean, everybody who, you know, all of you that are on this uh, session listening in, watch out for these three signs. Speak up when you see that happening. I think Roland has put it in a terrific way. Ruth, uh, you know, again, these, this whole issue of your journey, which you kind of described in such a fascinating way, what has been the outcome of all of this? How has that service improved in what you are doing? And what us, you know, just, just share a little bit about that. Thank you, Akhtar. Um, really uh, been interesting uh, listening to Roland and, and his passion on this topic. Um, well, um, our, I'll start by saying that our value of diversity and inclusion um, states how equitable participation enhances our collective impact. And we have seen amazing growth as a result of the commitments uh, we made to decentralize leadership and by operationalizing our diversity and inclusion policy. You know, for example, um, we are seeing a positive impact on our revenue. Um, 
our revenue doubled over the last three years uh, from about 12 million in 2018 and up to 24 million in 2021. So this is big. Um, but the point I'm making here is not just about the revenue, which on its own is great because it allows us to pursue our mission and vision. But this is also about our influence. Um, for us at Village Reach, revenue is not just a fundraising target. It is an indicator that shows us that we have been able to scale our impact. So a big part of this revenue increase is a result of the credibility we now have from having strong leadership in proximity to where we work, which facilitates focus and engagements with country-based stakeholders, such as funders and such as uh, other country-based partners and uh, the governments in the countries uh, where we work. So a, a lot is, is decided at country level. Um, and and uh, Roland has said quite a bit about, you know, um, the, the decentralization of power. And we're seeing this happening in terms of like uh, discussions around uh, what is important. I usually discussed in, in, at the level of the country. So having leadership at country and regional level has increased our engagements and improved the relevance of our solutions uh, so that they, they're really addressing uh, the needs of um, the communities that uh, uh, Roland's uh, referenced uh, with so much passion. And it has augmented our effectiveness and efficiency as an organization. We are also seeing that the future resources uh, the future of resources, I mean, is already any it will continue in the future uh, to be heavily driven at the country level by <clears throat> multilaterals. And so the credibility we're getting from having our leadership in proximity is very important, both to the revenue and the impact we are able to have as a result. The second example is just like related to what um, Roland said about uh, COVID-19. So when COVID-19 hit, our program staff was already in place in the, in the continent. We already had our team strong at country level and we had uh, strong regional technical assistance that made us well positioned since we are not driving our programs from Seattle, uh, but we are driving our programming from the continent and from the countries and communities. So that made it much easier for us to switch gears and respond. So I would say that they, they are some of the, these are some of the outcomes that confirm our conviction that we are going the right direction and that the commitments we made that I talked about back in 2017 are paying off. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ruth. And again, I mean, I just really love this whole notion of proximate and proximity and really having, and you know, this is again, a, another very important conversation that Roland has also brought about that what does community led actually mean? And proximate and proximate leadership and proximity is very important. I think Ruth, you really highlighted that quite well. Ruth, um, you know, CARE is just an amazing organization 
76 years in over 100 countries. Has this been challenging for you to kind of see this transformation take place across the world? So share a little bit about that. And again, you know, please jump in and talk about the issues that Roland and Ruth have also kind of brought up. Okay, all right. Thank you, Akta. Um, yes, um, the short answer to that question is that yes, it has been challenging. Um, we have a lot to be proud of. And I think like Village Ridge and the Hunger Project, um, we can see a real diversity in leadership and a real reflection of the local presence in our leadership spaces across the globe. And CARE is not just 76 years old, it is a federation of 21 members. So a lot of diversity and building consensus around change sometimes can be challenging. I think from the programmatic point of view, we've done a pretty good job around being locally led. I think one of our strengths is about having the voice and the intent and the knowledge and the leadership of the communities we serve reflected in decision-making around the kinds of programs we implement and the kind of um, uh, the design and the implementation as well as the monitoring and evaluation of those projects. And we are seeing that come through in terms of sustainability. So going back five, 10 years later, after care has left a particular location, you see a lot of traction still with people taking what they have learned to make it their own and to transform other parts of their lives. I think our challenge has been around mindset and our diversity is our strength and it is also our greatest challenge. If you were to walk into care today, depending on where in the world you were and said locally led, you would get very many different interpretations of it, of what that means. Um, to some people, it is about having persons like me and my colleagues throughout the globe, non-American, um, non-Europeans in positions of leadership and decision-making. Um, to others, it is, a, um, as um, Roland indicated, for some people, it is a political um, statement um, in response to what is happening in our context today with um, much more um, um, the funding flows going to the localization agenda where local organizations are being um, prioritized by the major donors in terms of funding. And that is a, a, as valid a reason. Um, for others, it is about hoping um, that one day care as it exists now in Ghana, for example, would one day not be have any reason to exist in this context. And that will be our measure of success. And really thinking about, okay, Ghana, the government of Ghana has said they want to be beyond aid by 2030. So self-sufficient, self-reliant, minimal um, 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 foreign aid for the development of its people and its economy. And what is CARE's role in that? And does that mean in by 2030, CARE Ghana should cease to exist? And what does that mean? And how does that happen? Is that a valid measure of success for an organization like CARE? Or is our main goal um, staying 
as long as we can in a particular context and continuing to reinvent ourselves so that we can continue to mobilize resources. So the mindset conversation and the paradigm shift is, is a, sometimes a very difficult conversations, conversation to have in an organization like CARE and I suspect for many of us. One thing I would like to say about localization and decolonization and locally led as well as um, leadership close to where we work. Um, in certain context and certain con conversations, both internally and externally, there's the misconception that this means cheaper labor. In that um, by having people who are based in, in a country and my team, for example, in Ghana, it's pretty much all Ghanaians working, um, doing this work on behalf of care and, and the people of Ghana that somehow that makes it a cheaper proposition for international organizations. And I think that's a very dangerous path to, to take when we are thinking about this conversation because it is not true. The value of the work that um, um, leaders, wherever they are, uh, um, do does not change because of, where, of the geography in which you are located. The skills you bring to the table are no different from, um, the, from the skills that someone in another geography brings to the table. The other part of it is um, we always say, as we often say, follow the money. And I think Roland um, alluded to it um, 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 in his contribution saying about what exactly uh, do we mean by localization when in fact, um, the more substantial the resources, the more heavy the compliance burden in many ways, we have created an ecosystem where compliance and um, adherence to, to policies and procedures and other measures and risk management measures have created almost like a, a specialized industry that very few local organizations with that do not have the resources that CARE has been able to build over 76 years of existence globally can, can uh, mobilize to be able to respond to the demands from the donor community about what um, they have to report on. And you know, um, in certain spaces, and I've uh, worked with CARE for a long time, we are known for as CARE of a thousand papers because of just the volume of paperwork we impose to meet all of these compliance um, um, system, um, requirements. Our systems tend to push back to the desire for change. So our, uh, our financial management, our procurement, mostly our operational systems, sometimes even with when we have made the progress around bringing people, um, increasing diversity, our systems sometimes actually push back or go in the reverse direction towards centralization where decision-making for whatever reason be it because there was a risk and something unexpected happened or something bad may have happened, the, the authorities pulled away from, from um, the, the community back to the headquarters or the, the centralized uh, system. So it is a constant conversation. It is not perfect. Um, sometimes um, with leadership change, 
we pivot according to what their leadership understanding is of a particular issue. So I think, um, you know, Black Lives Matters and decolonization is a reality we all have to deal with, but for us to succeed and for care and others to make it beyond the next um, uh, 10, 20 years, we have to really think really hard about the times when we would be very happy to actually declare ourselves redundant and move on to other new, as one of my colleagues in Burundi said, we should create a whole new box for ourselves to go do something else, something new and interesting, and let the people who have been doing the work for so long to really step in and take full control, not just of the activities we implement, but the resources we, we, uh, we use to implement those activities. And also, you know, we often talk about resource mobilization as something that is mostly focused in the global north. So we fundraise in Europe, yep. we fundraise yep. in the United States, and we do not see the resource value of what we have on site, or that we are mobilizing resources effectively and very, very valuable resources effectively in those communities where we work. And that will be our challenge. Um, in the next decade, I believe. And we have to move quickly because time is not on our side. That's a great, break. that's a great, great uh, insight, Rose. Um, if we can just do this as a lightning round, that'd be terrific. What advice would you give to other US-based NGOs that are trying to be on this path of proximity, community-led shifting of power so Rose, you start off first and then we'll go to Ruth and then end with Roland. And hopefully we'll do this in a minute each. Okay, I, I think one of the things we have to remember when we talk about um, locally led is the other side of it, which I think um, Ruth really captured, um, being globally connected. And the value we bring as international organizations or US-based organizations is that we bring a collective thought and way of thinking and a shared value around humanity and the dignity of human life and our desire to defeat um, extreme poverty and achieve social justice is common to all of us. So localization does not mean restricting people to a particular geography but recognizing that leadership is present in all geographies and creating the space for better global connection while at the same time leaving the power where it should rightfully rest with the people who are making the real changes in their lives. That's great, thank you very much. Power with people, I like it, Ruth. Yeah, so, um, you know, Rose just captured um, it very well around the, the connectivity piece, uh, because as in Village which we have also like really debated this topic quite a bit, and we ended up, you know, landing in that we, we do want to have that global connectivity, and, and this is part of how our work um, is going to advance and influence uh, in, in different uh, places where it has to. So what, what would I suggest, I would say to, to the organizations that would like to follow this uh, path, um, you know, first I would say establish a structure 
um, establish principles and decide on focus areas that, that, that you're going to work on uh, that go beyond just human resources. And so for us, we started with external communication, internal communications, human resources, and personal learning and development. Uh, we have since added governance to the focus areas. Um, and, and then we set up a, a group uh, that was going to lead the conversation and consult with staff. And, and this was a group that uh, is really um, staff-led and uh, but supported in, uh, by, 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 by leadership. Uh, and I would say that the second uh, key thing is like to make sure that you integrate the key diversity, equity, and inclusion targets into broader organizational goals so that this can be tracked and measured in the same way you measure your program progress. Uh, and for us, this includes leadership diversity targets, as I talked about that, and, and board makeup targets, you know, who is in our board and, and uh, you know, how diverse is our board? Uh, does it represent, you know, what we want to be as an organization? And, and you know, here we, we want to highlight African voices and perspectives and also you know, ensure that decision-making uh, powers and authorities are, are decentralized to these people. Um, and then I would say also, you know, focus on micro shifts, uh, you know, just get started. Don't see it as an overwhelming task. Um, we did not do this overnight uh, ourselves as Village Rich. We started small and we built as we went. And this has been a very important aspect of our effort. Um, you know, a great example of uh, this is the fact that when we first defined our diversity and inclusion value, we did not include equity in the definition. Um, this was five years ago, and we had not yet grappled with what that term really meant for us. Um, however, over time, the work we did, um, like our focus on salary equity across the organization really had an equity lens. And, and I know uh, Rose mentioned this around, you know, the cheap, uh, the, the concept of thinking that it will be cheap. And we were very careful at Village Rich to make sure that we think about this, we talk about that. And so we have a, a you know, a salary yeah. that is equitable around uh, everywhere. Thank you very much, Ruth. I know that we have run out of time, so I really want to give Roland one last word to share. Okay, so um, this is what I would say in, in, in one sentence. There is no going back. Enjoy this creative tension. And when Ruth and Rose were explaining, I'm sure all of us could see that they were framing something that looked like it creates a tension in every organization. And so my advice is enjoy that creative tension. There's no going back. Thank you. Thank, Thank you all you very are. much. This has been just such a phenomenal conversation and I'm so sorry we've run out of time, but tomorrow we continue this conversation. So please join us again. And Rose, Ruth and Rollins, thank you very much. Very, very interesting. Hopefully you listeners gain new understanding of how you can help facilitate these types of power shifts in your organization. This panel session actually has a sister session that we will air next called The Future of US-Based NGO Leadership, where Akhtar talks with the CEOs of Save the Children, PATH, and Opportunity International. Not to miss. We are passing through funds from funders in the US or, or elsewhere in the global north 
to local partners. And then we put more compliance regulations even on that local partner, partly driven by our back donor and sometimes even of our own making. Then that whole power dynamic is very, it's, it's very imbalanced. Thank you for joining us for Goalmakers, a podcast about world affairs and global development. For more information about our thriving global development community, global news and events, visit www.globallaw.org. Until next time, take care and be safe.